Hey, welcome to the Rooted to Live podcast. I'm sharing with you from sunny Raleigh, North Carolina, and spring is definitely breaking through. I don't know about where you're at. Um, a lot of my friends in Michigan, I'm guessing it's still gray because it's gray there 180 days a year. But honestly, if I'm being honest with you, I actually love winter. I love gray. I love cold. I like to wear sweaters. I'm rather um, big boned, so I like it when it's cold outside. I take in the cold as fuel. However, I understand that some people actually hate winter for the very reasons that I like it. For some people, winter is a reflection actually of spiritual circumstances and experience though, isn't that right? Cold, dark, no sun, you can't see what's growing. You can't see uh, any hope of flowers blooming. And like the feeling of a never-ending winter, uh, never-ending winter, uh, have you ever felt like God isn't hearing, seeing, or acknowledging you? Have you ever wondered what, what God is up to? When will he arrive? When will the sun break through? Have you ever doubted God even knowing your circumstances or if his love is really real? If so, you're not alone. Several years ago, I came across a website where atheists could engage one another with their discouragements and questions concerning God. Obviously, the God they don't believe in, and we understand the irony, but the point here is to have some sympathy. The kind of questions um, that I just asked earlier in this podcast were also being asked there. One person chose to publish on the site a letter to the God they don't believe in after a series of painful and really challenging questions they wrote this. Sorry if these questions sound a little sarcastic. It's just that we've been asking these questions for a very long time and we haven't heard from you yet. Are you listening? These thoughts and questions, of course, aren't new. They've been going on for quite some time. And in the Bible, we read of people who can relate to these kinds of questions and thoughts. And today what I'd like to do is I'd like to share with you the story of a man who must have wondered if God even knew he existed. His circumstances would seemingly erase almost all hope. Yet he encounters a pursuing God, Jesus, who actually knew his his whole story. And the encouragement I want to give you today is that God not only knows your story, but he has done everything to pursue you in it. And his word and works are greater than your circumstances. He actually pursues. The passage of scripture I want to read today is found in John chapter 5, and I'll start in verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids. Oh man, that word is tough, isn't it? Like invalid. Blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. So, Jesus entered the town during a particular religious feast, and in this town was a pool where something wonderful would happen, which kept people there hoping for a cure. This pool had the reputation as that of like a healing spot of sorts. In fact, some translations of this account speak of the disturbance in the water in the pool, and there was a superstition that an angel would cause this disturbance. So you can imagine, can't you, in an ancient world that this place would represent a last hope for healing. And at this place waited a man longing for healing. Can you just imagine how many times you think this man prayed to God for help? 
How many times did he plead for healing? How old is he? The text says that he's been sick sick for 38 years. Has he been sick since birth? Or maybe he fell ill at age 14 and his family just left him there ever since? Do you think, is it possible to wonder together, do you think that he wondered if God saw, knew, or even cared about him? See, this isn't just some story. This is a real place, and researchers and historians have found this place, this pool of Bethesda. This is a real place where real people with real problems and despair hoped for healing. Let me read verse 6 for you. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been already been there for a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? So Jesus sees the man, and God in the flesh is among the most desperate of all people. See, some people actually wonder, where is God when people are hurting? And this wonder goes all the way back toward the beginning of Scripture. You can even read in Exodus uh, chapter 3, where we see God's people have been enslaved for over 400 years. And in chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, basically God is saying, I have seen their misery, I have heard their cries, I'm concerned about their suffering, so I've come down to rescue them, the Scripture says. But a lot of times we get caught up in, yeah, but where were you those 400 years? Where have you been in the waiting? In the account of the man at the spa, Jesus is walking among the outcasts, the unclean, the sickly. He knows the story of this man, and on purpose he approaches the man and speaks to him. And it's actually a sympathetic question, do you want to get well? But the question seems silly, doesn't it? He wouldn't be at the pool if he doesn't want or isn't attempting to get well or isn't desiring to be well. But Jesus doesn't ask the question for his own sake. He's connecting with the man. So what does the man say? Verse 7. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, or when I try to go, another person steps down before me. The man's answer surprises me, though. Instead of just proclaiming, Yes, I want to be. Well, what do you think I'm doing here? He begins to reveal what he's been trying to do in his own effort, his own ability, and why his hope is dashed each time the water begins to bubble. He is alone, and no one around wants to help him. Maybe you felt the same way in your life. In life, there are problems, big and small. Jesus does promise trouble. And I don't want to make light of our life's worst troubles, but there are small problems in life I can't fix. There's, I, am, I do not have the ability to repair my car. I do not have the ability to put up blinds because my hands can't hold tiny little screws, and I drop them over and over again, and as each time I get... Each time I drop them, I can sense my sanctification waning. So if I can't solve small problems, I definitely can't solve life's big problems. Illnesses and diseases and people with tough diagnoses. Stage 4 cancer. I can't solve people's relationship issues. I can't solve the deep hurts and wounds and pains that people experience from long ago in their life. What are we going to do? And the truth is, is each of us needs someone else to change what we can't. This man is alone with no one to even attempt to try to solve the problem. This man is helpless and no one has been kind enough to even assist him. And Jesus is moved to action because he is the God. He is God come to earth to pursue people, to seek and to save that which is lost, to serve as a physician, not only for the physically sick or ill, but the spiritually dead. So what does Jesus do in light of the exchange with this man? The next verse tells us, Jesus said to him, okay, you want to get well, get up, 
take up your bed and walk. Isn't this a ridiculous statement? (laughs) Don't you think that he's been trying that very thing since the first day he found out he was sick? But Jesus isn't asking him, is he? He's, He's telling him, he's commanding this man to do the very thing that he wasn't able to do. He commanded him to walk around. This is the kind of thing that God does. He invites, commands, compels people to do the very things that they're unable to do. So what happens when Jesus commands the impossible of this man? Verse 9 tells us, And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Maybe you know the story well. And sometimes it creates encouragement, other times discouragement, because we think, why can't God just do for us what he did for him? But don't miss the principle in that comparison living. Here's the principle of the text. God's efforts are strongest when our efforts are useless. Jesus' words have the power to heal. He he created with his breath. He calmed the storms. His words have power. In Isaiah chapter 35, we read that as a result of Christ, the lame will leap like the deer, the scripture says. So what do you think legs healed by the creator look and function like? I'm guessing a 48-inch vertical leap. But what is our response when God asks the impossible of us? Love your enemy? Pray for those who persecute you? Forgive as you've been forgiven in Christ? Deny yourself daily, take up your cross daily, follow him daily. How are any of these things actually possible? Another principle, really, when we look at scriptures, that what God intends, he empowers. He makes possible that which is impossible. What is impossible with man is made possible with God. And when God calls us to something, he empowers us. We rely on him. He empowers us to do the thing that he's asked us to do. He calls us to things that only he can empower us to do. But we have to take a step. He calls us to things that only he can get the glory then when accomplished. And there's always something bigger going on in our circumstances than just the immediate circumstance. Even on the day of this man's healing, walking for the first time in 38 years wasn't God's only intention. Let me read on. The second part of verse 9 says, Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who was healed, It is the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, the man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, Well, who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? See, what you might not know is that carrying burdens was considered unlawful on the Sabbath, and so stoning was the rabbinical punishment. To the questioners, the healing of the man was a, was a minor detail. Oral tradition, though, beyond the Old Testament, stipulated 39 activities forbidden, including carrying anything from one domain to another. So the man, thus the man, was violating tradition. And instead of rejoicing with the man in his healing, the religious leaders condemned him. And it's easy to be discouraged with those religious leaders, but... Maybe put yourself in that position as well, just to, pers- to just to gain some perspective. This man is left having them to defend his amazing thing that's happening to him because the religious people can't see past their set ways. And he, he doesn't even know how, who, who, he doesn't really even know who healed him. They asked about the command to violate the Sabbath rather than rejoice with the man in this miraculous healing. <laughs> Sometimes we're not even really sure. We're not, we really don't have an angle on what God's up to. Verse 13 says, Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. 
See, what we see here is incredibly loving and merciful by Jesus. Jesus was faithful to remind him that being unable to walk is actually not the worst thing in life. The consequences, of course, of sin are worse. And this confrontation, this promoting of the truth, is another fulfiller of his namesake. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, we see that Jesus will save his people from their sins. So then the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. The Jews persecuted him because he wasn't following their set ways and old tradition. And they had taken the Sabbath, God's gift to man, and had transformed it into a prison house of regulations and restriction. They've made something God intended as a gift for us, a good thing, and made it an unbearable, burdensome, and grotesque thing to God. But what we see in all this is how God's timing is precise and powerful. He healed on this day, and and now he's revealing um, that he did it all on purpose. He's revealing who he is on purpose. The next verse, verse 17. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. What we see in the text really is that Jesus is intentional. He is always and only doing what his father is telling him. And the religious people ignored the good things that Jesus had done for the helpless and the hopeless and centered their attention on destroying him. They they didn't get that God was standing right before them and pursuing these people. The broken man by the pool is a prime exhibit of the pain and ruin in the world. But the healing of the man on the Sabbath was a part of God's work in this world. Jesus is the ever-pursuing, working God. And this should cause us to rest in him because we all relate to this man and these people. The paralyzed man's story is, is our story. What do we have in common with him? Well, our predicament and hope. Like this man, we have a problem that we can't solve. We are not perfect and thus not fit for entering into a relationship with a perfect God who's perfection and holiness. So we need a rescuer. In our set ways, our religious systems fall way short. We can't get to God. And we are are so valued by God and so loved by God that he clothed himself in flesh and came to seek and save people. Me, you. To offer us hope in hopelessness. We have no solution for our predicament. We have problems that we cannot solve in our lives. Chiefly the problem of our sin, the problem of ourself. The separation we have from God, we, we can't solve that. But, but Christ is hope personified and is the pursuer. And we need resurrection. We need healing. We need life. We need holiness. But we need it to be given to us. And the one who is life and holy offers himself to us. So Jesus came to solve our problem. He is our cure. He offers an exchange. He'll, he would take our life. He takes our past. He takes our sin and shame. And he offers us his life. But in this life, we will have trouble. But take heart, for Christ has overcome the world. And when the lies and doubts and fears about God not seeing or caring or working come to our mind, or when he's not working at our pace, or when he's not solving the problem that we so desperately want fixed, I want to invite you to choose to remember that Jesus Christ has done everything to make a way. Remember remember the Lord's intentions for you are good. He loves to do the seemingly impossible in and through you. And he's always watching and seeing and caring and pursuing. And God has, is, and will pursue you. He may not change the circumstance, 
but he'll meet the greatest need. So we have hope. How will you respond?